Excellencies, um, ambassadors, uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, good afternoon and welcome to this uh, seminar on the challenges of inclusive peace processes, the case of Colombia. My name is Turin Trigista and I'm the deputy director here at PRIO and I'm also heading the PRIO Center on Gender, Peace and Security, which is hosting this uh, seminar. Um, for the last decade or so, there has been uh, a growing push uh, by the international community to design peace processes that are inclusive, meaning that you not only bring the parties to the conflict to the negotiating table, but also representatives of various civil society groups. The belief is that for peace to be lasting, it has to be inclusive. There has been a particular push for including women in peace processes, but also representatives of groups such as youth, religious communities, indigenous peoples, and sexual identity minorities. However, inclusive peace processes also brings with them a number of dilemmas and challenges. And I think Colombia is a good case in point. At the time of the signing of the peace agreement, it was applauded and referred to by organizations such as UN Women as a blueprint for how inclusive processes could or should be designed. Yet we know that the inclusive nature of the peace agreement in Colombia was highly contested in the Colombian society and was a source of conflict and, important and an important reason for why the referendum in October 2016 ended with a no. And the agreement had to go through another round of negotiations and revisions, and particularly when it came to language on gender. In today's seminar, we will hear from a distinguished group of experts who will examine the ways through which inclusive peace processes can be developed, maintained, and implemented. Our first speaker is uh, Dagny Lander, the director of the Norwegian Center for Conflict Resolution, also known as NOREF. Before he joined NOREF, he was the director and head of the Section for Peace and Reconciliation at the Norwegian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. But I think for many of you here in the room, he is perhaps most well known as the leader of the Norwegian team facilitating the peace process between Colum the Colombian government and FARC from, I believe, 2010 to 2016. He has just recently published a book called in Norwegian, Ut av jungel, meaning out of the jungle. Looks like this, and you also see the picture here on the screen. Um, this is a book that he has co-authored with Norwegian journalist Tove uh, Gravdal. And in this book, he outlines his experiences as facilitator. And uh, for those of you who read Norwegian, there are books for sale. Uh, you can find them at the back table here in the room. And you can pay via VIPs. And I'm sure Dag is also ready to sign the book <laughs> if you want to. Yes. Um, okay. Um, in his introduction, Dag uh, will touch on issues such as effectiveness versus inclusivity and perceived liberal agendas and wording and its application in conservative societies. And I think we have also challenged him to share his views on the early framing of such issues as inclusivity uh, with conflicting parties. Following Dag Nilander, we will have two introductions by two PRIO senior researchers, both researching topics of inclusivity with a particular focus on disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration processes, also known as DDNR processes. First, we will hear from Venke Hauge, 
who will focus on the gender dimension of minors in DDNR processes based on her case studies of Colombia and Nepal. She is working on the Norwegian Research Council-funded project Disarm, how post-accord disarmament affects peace and conflict dynamics. Following Venke, we will hear from Julia Palik, who will discuss global trends related to DDNR processes in peace agreements in general and how women and minors are framed in DDNR processes specifically. She will highlight how the framing of women and minor competence in the DDR provisions in peace agreements has important implications for inclusive war to peace transformations. And she is the leader of the DISARM project. Um, before I uh, give the floor to Doug, I would just like to mention that this seminar is being uh, recorded. So the audio will be made avail available online uh, a few days from now, I guess. Uh, we will start out with Doug. He will talk for about 20 minutes, uh, and then Venke and Julia will follow talking about for about, I guess, 12 to 15 minutes. Uh, and then hopefully we will have 30 minutes for questions and answers. So I think, Doug, I'll just give the floor to you. Thank you, uh, Torun. Um, very pleased to be here. Um, grateful to uh, Torun and her team for inviting me to this uh, uh, seminar. Um, I've written a book. Uh, as you can see, very proud of that. I hope uh, those of you who will read it uh, will enjoy it, although there is no, uh, I can't give any, any guarantees, obviously. Um, very pleased to see so many of uh, uh, my old friends and acquaintances from uh, Norwegian ex-diplomats and ambassadors, uh, distinguished uh, uh, researchers, and also members of the of the uh, of the diplomatic community in in uh, Oslo. So I recognize the ambassador of Venezuela, the ambassador of Cuba, the ambassador of uh, Colombia, and probably others whom I'm I do not know personally. So um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on explaining what you already know, which is basically why the issue of gender and inclusion is so important. But just to start very basically with the following, um, that an inclusive approach to uh, gender in peace processes increases the legitimacy of uh, the process. Uh, it increases the legitimacy of the outcome of a process uh, and it increases the capacity of the political process to address the armed conflict's various causes and consequences. And it helps the parties to better assess and respond to the different needs and interests of the various uh, populations in uh, the society. So it makes for a much better process. It makes for a much more solid peace agreement and it increases the chances of a successful implementation of an uh, agreement. Um, at least if the issue is introduced 
and presented uh, wisely to the conflict parties and that the conflict parties are able to introduce the issue wisely to the, to the population. Uh, and that is really the focus of my intervention. Um, I'll say a few words about how to introduce the, the topic of uh, gender and inclusion in a peace uh, process. Uh, I will look mainly on the issue of uh, gender, but also talk about inclusivity in uh, a more general uh, sense. And towards the end, I will say a few words also about uh, children in, in armed uh, conflict. I know that uh, Venke and, and uh, Julia will probably talk more about minors, uh, so I will have a couple of uh, uh, very unscientific views about that, and you will be able to correct me in your interventions. And I really have to say, you know, first, I'm not, not an expert on, on gender and uh, inclusion. I'm really not an expert on anything. Um, but uh, I have written a book, and uh, I'll do my best to uh, share my um, from my experience. So the 2016 uh, peace agreement between the Colombian government and the FARC-EP is said to be the most inclusive uh, peace uh, agreement in history. For the first time, a subcommission on gender was created during uh, the process uh, consisting of uh, representatives of the parties. So the parties themselves were sitting in this subcommission on gender that was working on this particular issue around the negotiating uh, table. Um, the final agreement uh, called for institutional actions uh, to strengthen political participation of women and the LGBTI community as well as to call for guarantees for economic, social, and cultural rights for uh, minorities. Uh, the negotiating parties granted uh, relevant spaces for the participation of society at large in the process, uh, including, of course, uh, women's participation. Uh, women, in particular, were included in the various negotiation roles, including as uh, main negotiators, as uh, plenipotentiaries at the table. So the parties accepted gender and other inclusive approaches as important elements in responding to the needs of the population and making sure that uh, the, the viewpoints of the very various parts of the population were fed into and taken into account by uh, the parties at the table. So how do you get uh, parties that are coming out of an armed conflict to take uh, gender and inclusion seriously if they are not already taking it seriously. And from the outset, I will, I will generalize a little bit, of course, which you have to do. But both, I would say, particularly in the government delegation, there were uh, defenders of this agenda 
early on that said uh, clearly to the international community, to the Norwegians, to the Cubans, to the Venezuelans, that this is an issue that we take seriously and we need to include it on the agenda. Not everyone, but some, okay? And within the FARC, uh, similarly, not that strong, at least not initially, there were also people that had knowledge of and understood the importance of this uh, work. So parties coming out of armed conflict, they're really more concerned normally by the fact that they have eventually found together in a dialogue and that they eventually are sitting down at the table to negotiating a way out of the conflict. Okay, so it, it, it's a question of life and death and people are sitting there uh, almost literally with, uh, with, with blood on their hands. And you really have to be smart in the way you introduce this issue to the parties if, if, if you feel that that is uh, necessary. And in the Colombian context, it was necessary. So you don't want to push too hard. You have to make sure that the parties have ownership to this agenda. Um, when uh, the process uh, starts. And again, um, in the, well, let, let me start by, in the early, early phases of, of the process, when we were, when the parties were meeting secretly in, um, mostly in, in Venezuela, two representatives from the FARC, two representatives from uh, the Colombian government, representatives from Venezuela as the host country at that moment, representatives from, from Cuba and from, uh, from Norway. So there were uh, four meetings in total in, uh, in and around Venezuela, to put it that way, um, where uh, the, the main issue was really how do we get the ones who need needs to get out of Colombia, out of the jungle, to the negotiating table in Havana. So it, it was very, you know, the practical discussions of who are going to sit at the table, um, where do we get them, and how do we get them out in the midst of an armed uh, conflict. So that was a moment where we couldn't really push this agenda too hard. Um, but I, I was at that point uh, working with uh, a fellow diplomat, Elisabeth Schlottum, and we discussed them as, okay, we need to sort of make sure that this issue, which is a high priority for the Norwegian government, we need to make sure that this um, issue gets on the agenda, that the parties understand that this is important to us. So Elisabeth said, well, you should you should bring it up with the parties. I shouldn't do it. As a woman, I think it's important that a man brings it up. So I said, okay, and I approached the parties, first bilaterally, each of them, and then in a, in, in a, in a session where we were seated around the Venezuelan table, and both uh, parties, the two representatives from each side, basically just looked at me, you know, with a blank expression on their face. It wasn't the time, really, to discuss that issue, which I understood. So it started with sort of, okay, thank you very much, but it, it's, it's not an issue for us now. 
and then later on, not that, uh, not that far down the road, um, I would say that in both negotiating delegations, the second phase in a way on this topic was when the parties understood, and now I'm talking about maybe the heads of delegations or people surrounding the heads of delegations really understood that this was a topic that was important to Norway, it was important to Cuba, it was important to Venezuela and the international community and the Colombian civil society, which had a very strong voice in this matters. So they sort of accepted it as an issue that they needed, needed to take seriously because they understood that it would increase the legitimacy of the process and an eventual uh, peace agreement. And then the third sort of stage in how the parties looked on this issue was when they understood, all of them, full delegations, uh, that this was a topic that was important because it made the process better and it made an eventual peace agreement more solid. So that was sort of the three stages uh, the parties, generally speaking, moved along. So when we picked up together with the ICRC, um, two FARC representatives in the midst of the conflict in Colombia, to go to Havana, we picked up um, one man and one woman. Uh, one member of the secretariat, um, uh, El Medico, um, Mauricio Jaramillo, and uh, Sandra Ramirez, whom I didn't know at the, that point, but who turned out to be a very uh, important person in the FARC. She was the late uh, girlfriend of the founder of the FARC, Manuel Marulanda. So these are the, we had on, on, the, on the FARC side, we had a 50-50 representation at that, at that point. That was the only point in the talks where we had anything as, uh, resembling 50-50 uh, participation among the sexes. And then in Havana, when we eventually got there, with the help of the ICRC and the, and the, and the Venezuelans, um, the parties, six uh, members of each delegation, um, Sandra Ramirez was at the table uh, on the government side. At that point, there were no uh, women in the, in, the front, in, the, in the front seat. Uh, but the parties decided something very important. They decided, one, that victims would be at the center of the talks. So that is sort of inclusion in a broader sense. Victims at the center. This is about victims. It's not about us, the government or the FARC, it's about the victims of the armed conflict, historical victims and future victims. So this became sort of a rallying cry for the parties. Uh, we do this for the victims, we're not here to exchange uh, impunity as, or positions in parliament, whatever, it's, it's really for the victims. And the second thing they agreed on related to inclusion was was uh, a final clause in the general agreement or the framework agreement that they signed after six months of secret negotiations in Havana was um, a final clause on the broadest possible participation in the talks as possible. 
la más amplia participación posible. So that was the secret phase, and then we we're going to launch the process in Oslo. Many reasons for why it was launched in Oslo, but I won't go into that here. But what happened? So we came to Oslo. We started. Okay, look, it was only men in both delegations, and then okay, and we understood on the Norwegian side that we needed to sort of try to break up the male dominance. So. Um, um, uh, Tuna Alders, who was at that point my 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 boss at the section for peace and reconciliation in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, was sort of was put in the middle of this together with the with the Cubans to sort of break up the the male dominance. And to the far extremes, we had the Venezuelans, and the other side we had uh, the Chileans, who were also uh, accompanying the. Uh, the process. So, you know, that's, that's not making a big point of that, but of course, I felt after having worked on Colombia for so many, year, so many years, having to take, uh, um, what is he called, not center stage, but sort of to the, in the back to the, to the left. Was it personally, it was a little bit um, strange, but it was for the benefit of the cost, to put it that way. So we managed to sort of uh, at least get some women at the table in that particular situation. Okay, Colombian civil society um, played a hugely important role uh, in the public uh, phase and in the years running up to the public phase. Colombia has a very active civil society including many organizations that are focused on this particular agenda. And what they did early on in the process in the public phase was to arrange a big conference in Bogota together with the United Nations with the support of the international com community. Really a, uh, a conference that brought together lots of important people, uh, organizations and the topic of inclusion and, and sort of imposed themselves on the parties in in Havana. So that was really the the, 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 the really the, the, the formal start of inclusion at the peace table in Havana by this by civil society really taking the initiative and enforcing them on the on the parties. So incrementally, women were, were included at the um, table, the peace table in Havana. There were, you know, six or seven from each side as, as plenipotentiaries at, at, at each side in the beginning, uh, uh, mainly men. But then eventually uh, there were um, uh, two um, very knowledgeable um, women on the government uh, side, uh, Nigeria Renteria and uh, Maria Paulina Riveros and uh, Victoria Sandino and uh, Alexandra Nariño on the FARC side. And then a little bit further down the line in the peace process, for example, the, the, the Colombian foreign minister, uh, Maria Angela Holguin, was also part of the, of the plenipotentiaries at, at the table. And then, as I mentioned, a subcommission for gender was established in, in I think it was in 2015. 
And at that point, the parties had already agreed on a number of um, partial agreements, uh, political participation and, uh, and uh, land issues, uh, amongst others. And the mandate of this subcommission was to look into the agreements that had already been signed, partial agreements, but not, not implemented, but signed, that you know, they were to be part of the final comprehensive agreement, and introduce um, relevant language um, on this particular topic. They weren't supposed to renegotiate, they were supposed to change the language to uh, make it reflective of gender and inclusion. I was a little bit nervous but I, because I thought, you know, the parties have spent so much time negotiating very, very difficult um, compromises, and then they reopened the text, albeit for just a revision of the wording, but you know, you all know how difficult that can be and how easy it would be to sort of open up old disagreements, but it went very well. And then this subcommission continued working throughout the peace process, uh, 15 and, and 16. And in this subcommission, there were the parties had the, the, the opportunity to be guided by uh, international experts. There were one Norwegian, one Cuban, and one non-Cuban, non-Norwegian, a Spanish uh, expert that participated in all of the meetings uh, in this particular subcommission. Uh, and then effectiveness and, inclus and inclusivity. Is there a tension between how inclusive you can, you can be and how effective you can be as a negotiating table? Um, and this is really inclusion broadly uh, uh, speaking. Um, there is a balance between uh, inclusion and uh, effectiveness at least. And I will use the inclusion of victims as an example here. Um, we could obviously not receive nine million uh, victims or millions of victims at uh, the table. So we needed to make sure that the parties received uh, representative and relevant voices from the victims um, um, community. So who decided on who should be part of the uh, victims at the table because we needed to bring victims but we couldn't bring all of them. So I remember I was sitting in in Bogota in the apartment of really the architect and the the brain behind the, the peace negotiations, uh, Sergio Jaramillo, who was the who was the peace commissioner and number two in command of the government delegation at the table. I was sitting, having breakfast in his apartment in Bogota. Uh, it was the same building where another distinguished <coughs> Colombian uh, lived, Alvaro Leiva, who is now foreign minister of Colombia, but he was, they were neighbors. And uh, 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 Alvaro Leiva and Sergio Jaramillo and uh, Umberto Lacalle, who was the head of the delegation, and President Santos himself, were skeptical of letting, um, of letting um, 
the, the now foreign minister of Colombia into the peace talks. But he, end, he ended up playing a very, very important, important role in the, in the peace uh, negotiations, um, um, together with a number of other unofficial Colombians that were um, slowly introduced to the table as the, as the negotiations expanded and, and took up speed towards um, uh, the end. So could Norway choose the victims? I said to Sergio, absolutely not. We cannot do it. It will jeopardize our role as being impartial and neutral in the eyes of the, of the parties. So the parties ended up designating the United Nations, um, the, the Catholic Church, and the National University to sort of put together five different groups, 60 victims in total, to uh, be part of the peace talks in, in Havana. Um, so the subcommission worked hard, the parties worked hard, they took the issue seriously. We were in a hurry towards the end. Everyone were in a hurry. The, the President Santos, the FARC, the international community, uh, the Cubans, the Norwegians, the Venezuelans, you know, everyone really wanted the parties to get to a final agreement. And the issue of gender was worked with diligently. Um, and the peace agreement was in total more than 300 pages. It was uh, full of references to this particular agenda, talked about LGBTI, uh, uh, gender, um, equality of the sex. It, it had a you know very um, um, solid language, I would say, on this uh, topic. Did we do too much? Uh, maybe. Did we? think sufficiently about the recipients, who the, the people that were going to not only read the agreement or hear about the agreement, but uh, the people that were going to vote on the agreement. So the way this topic was framed in the peace agreement made it very, very easy for the uh, enemies of the peace agreement to attack the peace agreement. And they did that very effi efficiently. Ex-President Uribe uh, did a wonderful campaign, uh, well, not wonderful, effective campaign, uh, was inaccurate, very political, with lots of charged language, with the support of the of um, um, a number of religious communities and churches in in Colombia, and it was and the peace agreement was really presented as an attack on um, the traditional family values of of Colombia. So that was the effect of partially not thinking enough about the audience that this peace agreement was going to land in, and similarly not doing it doing enough to. Um, talk about and uh, campaign for the peace agreement before the referendum in 2016. So 
to sum up uh, briefly, um, don't push the agenda too hard with the parties, do it wisely. That's the first point. The second is include what is necessary in the, in the agenda and the peace agreement, not what you necessarily desire, or don't be maximalistic. And thirdly, do not forget the audience that the, the, the wording is going to land in. And finally, one remark on, on children in armed uh, conflict. Um, FARC was adamant that they were not going to let their minors, because they had, they had minors in their files, obviously, but they said they had joined us voluntarily. They should disarm together with the rest of us. I knew this to be true because I had spoken to many, 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 many members of the FARC over the years. And even if you were a minor, you know, voluntarily in the way that they lived under such condi conditions that they felt they had it better off in the FARC than outside. And they really, these children really, really wanted to be demobilized together with um, their, uh, their comrades in, in, in the FARC. But this was impossible for political reasons. For the Colombian government, it was very difficult because of the international community and how the international community perceives the topic of children in armed conflict. It's really black and white. There's nothing in between. It's black and white. Are you under this? Are you over this edge? So that was a real problem in, in the Colombian peace process. I don't know what the repercussions of this were, other than on a personal level, but I'm sure that Venki will say more about uh, that. And lastly, uh, on the new international geopolitical climate, it's, it is more difficult to defend this agenda today in the international community than it was just some months or at least a couple of years ago. So we need to think creatively in terms of how we present this topic and how we work um, with it uh, in order to convince others and parties in conflict that inclusivity and gender is not an attack on, on family values, but rather an expression of something larger and, uh, and uh, an expression of, of shared uh, universal uh, values. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Doug. Um, and there will be, of course, opportunities for you to ask follow-up questions uh, afterwards. I will now give the floor to, to Venke Hauga. I think uh, what you said about minors, uh, Doug, is a very good segue into Venke's presentation and her research on minors in DDNR processes. So the floor is yours, Venke. Thank you, Turin, and uh, thank you, uh, Doug, for a very interesting uh, presentation, insightful, and also interesting what you said about the minors. I just have to now look at the watch to see I'm following the time, yeah. So, um, as you see, I have titled my presentation, Nobody Listens to Us. And that is because this is what came true to me repeatedly in the interviews that I had with 47 miners in, from FARC in Colombia and from uh, PLA in Nepal. And uh, now I'm going to concentrate on Colombia and on the, the experiences of the miners 
in the disarmament, demobilization and reintegration process, their own experiences and with a gender perspective. I'll, I'll just refer to DDR uh, because of the long expression. So, uh, I think it's, it's important to be aware that when it comes to minors, I refer to minors as children and, and teenagers under 18 years. Uh, and uh, the focus on minors have been really on how to get them out of the armed group or how to prevent recruitment. But there has been very little focus on what actually happens to them afterwards uh, and uh, how they, their own experiences of this are. And, and the gender perspective has been almost completely absent. And I think, uh, also as Doug referred to, as it, that it's very important to have the international framework in the back of, the, of our mind. And it's particularly what I'm bringing up here is the UN operational standards for disarmament, demobilization and reintegration processes. And they have a particular chapter on children in DDR. And as you see here, it says that the time from the arrival to the cantonments and until the minors are separated from the adult soldiers should be very short and preferably not more than 48 hours. And they also say that the emphasis should be on reunifying the uh, children with their families and go back to the local community as soon as possible. And this is a very universal um, uh, recommendation. And uh, it does not take the particular context of each conflict into consideration. Very big difference between the conflict in Colombia, Uganda, Sierra Leone, and so on. And it does not look at how the minors, uh, the genders may experience this differently. For example, how is it for the female minors to be sent back to the local community? And so, uh, um, what I'm going to say is based on a project I said, I had uh, 47 interviews uh, on this with uh, minors in Nepal and Colombia. And as you see, I've divided the group that I interviewed into two. So half the group experienced to be separated from FARC. They, had, they were still under 18 years when the, the process began. The other half had become like 19, 20 years old, and they... Um, uh, they were allowed to stay with FARC if they wanted, which many of them did. So then I had actually a possibility to compare how they fared afterwards. And I think to understand how these miners reacted in the, in the DDR process, you first have to understand uh, also what Doug mentioned, why and how they became members of the armed group in the first hand. And I just want to quote one of them who said, FARC did not force us. On the contrary, because of the violence and repression, they had to take care of us. And I, was, I had expected to find different things in, in my interviews. And I was really surprised to see that all of them had, in, had joined voluntarily. You see my definition there. Uh, and not only that, even more surprising, they had approached FARC on their own initiative. Uh, and five of them had even approached FARC several times. And FARC had said to them, you're, these were three females of them, 
you, you're, you're way too young. You have to go back to your family and your community. And they went back. And they came back over and over and over again to Farken. On the end, in the end, they begged on their knees, please let us become a member. And because of the dire conditions that they were living under, horrible conditions, some of them were in life danger, they didn't have enough to eat, uh, Fark let them in. And uh, the reasons for joining Fark uh, was a mixture of extreme poverty and army persecution of someone in the family that had lost a father or, or whoever, one in the family. Uh, and also some had experienced that the army had bombed their village. Some had experienced violent and abusive parents, but also several of them had already a FARC member uh, in the family, and they wanted to go there and be reunited with their family. Actually, these are also very similar reasons I found in Nepal. That's interesting, except for there you also have the caste system, so, so that was also uh, an issue. And also, uh, um, before I go on, also their experiences with FARC. They told about, they, have, they had had a, a good time, and especially the females said that they had been protected against uh, uh, violence, rapes and everything. Uh, there had been punishment of those males if, if, if anybody did anything. And they also felt that there had been uh, gender equality. So based on this, it's easy to understand that for many of these miners, the separation from FARC was very difficult. They consequently referred to FARC as their family. And this is only not only my research, but I've also seen a PhD uh, with lots of interviews with FARC members where they refer to FARC as their family. And they did not want to become separated from the armed group. And it was actually a very difficult experience for many of them. And again, I will give you some quotes because it's important to hear their own voices. So one of them said to me, um, uh, that the ICRC had been there uh, for, for several days to convince them to go, but uh, only one of them wanted to leave. Uh, and this was a large group. And there was a lot of pressure, not from FARC, but from the organizations. And we felt that we did not have a choice. And then another one said, when they told us that we had to leave, we were shocked and scared. Where were they planning to take us? And to become divided from the others after so many years together, this was very difficult. It happened overnight. They should at least have given us a month. We cried, we panicked, and we were confused. So this is the process then. Uh, these miners who were separated from FARC were taken to interim care centers for three months. And um, afterwards, most of them, at least they tried to send them back to their family. And some, some ended up in special protection houses. And some with an aunt or uncle, or so if uh, they didn't have the family there. There were 10 interim care centers. And UNICEF uh, was responsible for, for setting them up and for hiring all the people working there, like psychologists and operators and so on. But uh, the uh, Institute for Family Welfare in, in Colombia, or the, I would say, Child Protection uh, Institute, actually took control after a while 
of many of them. This was confirmed by the organizations like UNICEF, for example. And, uh, and also the miners said this. And so um, they, FARC could not, as you see, visit four of the centers. And it was also several of the miners were not even allowed to speak with FARC on the phone. And they were very frustrated and angry about this. But the strongest complaints actually was against the psychologists there. So again, a few quotes. In the beginning, we stayed in our rooms and we did not talk. This is in the centers. It was extremely difficult. I cried for a long time and asked myself why this was happening. In addition, it was difficult because the people from the organizations asked too many questions. The only thing they achieved was to make us nervous. And another one about the psychologists. And the psychologists. We really disliked some of them. It was very difficult. They asked for names. We were afraid that they wanted information to kill us later. And they were urban psychologists who did not understand the life in the rural areas. It was more like an interrogation. Finally, another one about the psychologists. They tried to impose their views on us. So also, when they left these centers and returned to the local communities, this was a very difficult experience, a negative. Uh, and in Colombia, this was particularly with regard to the family and the local communities, they were not happy to have them there for security reasons. As paramilitaries and other groups, the ELN, coca growers, were operating in many of these areas. And also the miners themselves said that they felt uh, they were nervous. So some of them stayed there for 14 days, for one month, and then they left their family. And the parents were also too poor to, to take care of them. And it, actually, some of the miners ended up supporting with the little money they had supporting their family instead of the opposite. Uh, and some females were stigmatized. As, and as you can see here, in general, the female miners who had experienced more progressive gender relations with FARC, they had a hard time facing the traditional uh, expectations in the communities. So my general impression with this half group of my interviewees was above all the loneliness, because ties to FARC had been cut. They could not stay with their family, and they could not even link up with other miners in the same situation because they were spread all across the country. They had problems to, to find the others. They also actually had economic problems. You wouldn't believe that, but they did, because they got a one-time um, payment when they left these uh, ICC centers, and when they, they, they um, completed 18 years, they also got the, the same amount of money that every ex-combatant from FARC received for a time after the, 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 the DDR process. But since these miners could not, they have had to find their own place to live because they didn't stay with their families or they didn't stay with FARC. They had to pay for the food. They didn't have any education. They got only low-paid jobs. And so they were always in economic troubles. And insecurity. They were afraid uh, 
not only when they were with their families, but also afterwards. They did not feel protected, and some of them have actually received death threats. And some of them even keep on contacting me afterwards, because I'm the only person. Uh, I had to, of course, give my name when you, when you do interviews like that, because they can complain uh, uh, about the way you do things. And a few of them have actually contacted me for advice, because they're, they're very nervous. Uh, so, comparing this to the other groups, the other part uh, that uh, had were now like 19, 20, 21 years old, they were actually much better off. Uh, most of them stayed in these, these cantonments that had now been uh, made into more permanent zones for, for uh, education and, and reincorporation. Some also stayed close to FARC centers in Medellin and, and Bogota. And they had lots of support, networks, and they felt much better off. And in these ETCRs, they were also, since the state pays the, the rent for the houses, they were also, uh, and they even get some food brought up. Their economic situation was better. <laughs> and uh, the female miners uh, uh, were much uh, better off here because there were childcare centers and the males also took their part of the, the um, looking after the children. Uh, and they were socially and politically active. Just to show you a few pictures, this was a normal scene with the fathers looking after their children in the Etesares. And also men and women, young and old, participating in social activities like this. So, so I got a good impression of these etesieres. So my final recommendations are uh, that it's, it's very important to um, give these miners a real choice. They have to be listened to. I'm sure that if this group had been asked, maybe some of them would have wanted to not to stay with FARC, but, I'm, but the majority would have wanted to stay with FARC. Uh, but they should at least have a choice and a particular context should be taken into consideration. And above all, um, the female miners uh, should be uh, particularly protected against being sent back to their family and home community where they, some of them are stigmatized and harassed. And maybe I should just mention before I stop now that also in Nepal, I haven't talked about that, but th there is the situation for the female minors who were sent back to the local communities was even much worse. They were extremely harassed and stigmatized. Uh, so please listen to these minors. They have a voice, they can take their own decisions, they, they are able to speak up for themselves. Thank you. Thank you so much, um, Venke. Uh, I think we'll just move straight on to you, Julia. Time is flying. Um, Julia is also doing research on, uh, on ceasefires and DDNR processes. So she will share with us some of her findings, which are more... Uh, general looking across conflict situations and regions uh, of the world. So please, Julia. Fantastic. Thank you, Torun. Thank you, Venke. And thank you, Doug. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Uh, I have the pleasure to close this session. And thank you for bearing with me and paying attention still. Um, 
I think this is a very interesting framework today that we are hearing because Doug has been talking about the painstaking process of crafting an agreement, right? And how much work goes into the language of a particular agreement. And Venka has been talking about the implications of this language. What does it mean that when these kind of provisions are translated into real-world context? I have the wonderful opportunity and the easy task to talk about the agreements themselves in a more global perspective. Uh, I'm going to talk about how particular provisions, DDR provisions, frame or do not frame women and minors. But before I do that, I would like to just direct our attention a little bit to female combatants. Because female combatants are present in armed groups, research has shown this consistently, and in high-level leader positions, and they are not inconsequential. They influence both the duration and the outcome of civil conflicts. Their presence makes civil conflicts longer, and when it comes to the outcome, rebel victory is usually more likely. What happens after conflicts, and Venka talked about this a little bit, I want to explain with a few words this kind of very technical, blurry, highly gendered area of DDR, which concerns non-state actors uh, in most cases. The D refers to the weapons that the armed group was using against the state or other non-state groups after a peace agreements usually contain provisions for these weapons to be collected, registered, stored or eventually destroyed and their ammunitions. The demobilization part, the second part, concerns the relationship between these people who have been part of armed groups and how to break down these, these kind of networks. Whereas the reintegration, the largest process, as Venka has been touching up on it, concerns the kind of identity transformation from a violent combatant role to a civilian one. There are a number of international instruments that are, especially since uh, the 2000 UN Security Council Resolution uh, 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, tend to promote and call for the integration of gender perspective, specifically in these very strongly men-led and men-dominated discussions on weapons, that is DDR. And Venka also reflected on the UN has a very lengthy technical description and process for DDR processes. It has a very substantial gender component. But what is happening in reality, as Doug illustrated it very interestingly, this is a sensitive issue to bring in when you're talking to conflict parties. So on the one hand, there is this proliferation of norms at the institutional level, but how do we see this in real life, right? Do we really see these provisions uh, uh, trickling down to peace agreements? Now, research has been done on why females are excluded, although they are present and influential in conflict, uh, in conflict situations. Why are they excluded from DDR provisions? Very simply, sometimes they do not have weapons. Or when they do have weapons, other male members tend to take them away, hence they don't have anything to hand in that would make them eligible for the later processes. What can also happen is that they're simply escaping these processes. But the end result, nevertheless, is, and research is consist consistently showing this, women combatants tend to reintegrate individually without much support. This sometimes happens by choice, and this is also important to note that they are not necessarily only victims of DDR processes exclusion, but they might choose to come out from this. Now, the interesting thing, what we learned 
from examining almost 300 peace agreements between 1975 and 2021. Similar kinds of agreements that DOC has been working on. We found that amongst these agreements, 126 had some kind of DDR component, maybe not the whole program, but some of it. But only two out of this, that is 2%, had an explicit reference to women in the DDR provisions. And then tying it up to Venka's work, there were 11 agreements that referenced minors and nine referenced these groups in the same sentence. This is very little. Uh, and this does not reflect the prevalence of women and minors in these conflicts. What you can see here uh, are a lot of colored lines, uh, but what I would like you to focus on is the blue and the purple lines. What you can see, the blue lines, not very many, depicts the references in time to women or female ex-combatants in peace agreements. Before 2000, so before uh, the Security Council agreed on the WPS agenda and the first resolution, only two peace agreements referenced women in DDR provisions, and this was Uganda and Guatemala. What we can see, and we can speculate that this has been the outcome or kind of the trickle-down effect of the UN Security Council resolution, that after the 2000s there is a slight increase, but again, we are talking about so few agreements that this, is, this remains very insignificant. When we look into the regions, what we can see is that it's only Africa and the Americas that experience any kind of reference to these groups. And uh, as many of you know it very well, Asia, Europe, and the Middle East is not without conflict and not without female combatants or DDR processes. Yet, these texts that's supposed to regulate or kind of pave a legal way for a transition from war to peace do not reference women or minors. Uh, it's an easy task to examine the content of these provisions, unfortunately, because, and I'm going to talk a little bit about Colombia, uh, that is the exception to the general rule in many, many ways, especially when it comes to DDR processes. I will show you some illustrations that how female combatants are framed in DDR processes, but essentially three very generic themes emerge, that these are victims who are in need of protection. There is absolutely no details that how this protection should unfold or what it is. When it comes to children, there is the need to refrain from recruitment, and the most prevalent type of measure is my favorite, that specific measures are needed, right? Who is going to provide that? Who is going to pay for that? What those specific measures are, are almost never explicated. And we are talking about peace agreements and later agreements might detail this, but I'm going to go back to my personal views on that why, why is this a problem? Just to illustrate you what I was saying, the uh, 2015 peace agreement uh, in the Central African Republic is very illustrative of most of the provisions that I was mentioning. That I don't need to take the specific needs of women, youth, and children into account in all phases of the DDR process. Okay, that's all. This is the only sentence that we're talking about. And I'm coming back to Colombia here because there are two exceptions amongst all these 300 peace agreements that have a detailed description of female ex-combatants and what is going to happen, these women agents of violence in a post-conflict process. And this is Colombia and the 2006 Darfur Peace Agreement. Now I want to highlight that this is 
two very contrasting cases, very interesting. Doug has been mentioning the very intense civil society involvement and kind of pressure, bottom-up pressure to include gender language. And there was a lucky and wonderful coincidence that the international external actors who were involved also pushed for this. In the 2006 Darfur peace agreement, this was a much more top-down process that gender language was included in this. And as you can see as an illustration that how extensive reference to women in armed groups can be uh, in an agreement, I took it from the Darfur agreement just to spice things up and not necessarily talk to Colombia, you can explicate that it's not only girls who, it's, sorry, it's not only boys who should uh, be prevented from being recruited, there is a special need for protection of women and girls in camps, that women should be included in national DDR commissions, and my favorite is the second to last, demobilization should include former combatants, including former female combatants. These things are important to emphasize and to explicate because if we don't mention women, it doesn't mean that an agreement is gender neutral. These women need attention and need the possibility to be part of these processes. So, to sum it up, uh, what we have learned in this quite a long exercise that has taken approximately two years to code all of these agreements and to get these patterns that I showed to you, that only 17% of all the peace agreements that we examined has any kind of reference to female excombatants in the DDR provisions or minors. The lack of explicit mention in these documents uh, endangered the fact that after the peace process is over, these women do not get any help in terms of reintegration. And when they are referenced in those few cases, mostly they are focused on as victims. And then this has kind of a, an important implication for international language when it comes to female ex-combatants, because what we can see in the, on the one hand is the WPS agenda has limited impact in peace agreement language because of the intricate difficulties that conflict parties, who are mostly men, sitting and talking. And then the UN is in the process of revising the DDR standards, and this is a very easily sounding recommendation that there are already two very good examples of peace agreements that how female excombatants should be accounted for in the agreement text itself, Colombia and Darfur, and this should be continued. And then, as I said, despite the existence of these relevant mechanisms, uh, these constituencies remain very much unaccounted for. And I just wanted to uh, end this presentation by mentioning that um, we are doing a three and a half year long project, as uh, Torun kindly said, on disarmament in peace processes and transitions. And we have several gender components and different, um, in different aspects of these processes. So please follow this page and I'm very happy to chat with any of you after this because uh, I'm always happy to share that what we found and learned from you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, um, Julia. Uh, I would like now to ask all three of you to join me here on, on the podium. And in the interest of time, I think uh, we should probably just move straight to um, questions and um, discussion. I, I'm sure that there are many in the audience who would like to ask questions or comment on what they've just heard. So please, when you 
ask for the floor um, or you would like to ask a question, raise your hand and also say who you are. It's also always good for us to, to know who we are responding to. So just please, the floor is yours, audience. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm Ingun Wick and I'm Head of Emergency Response with Plan International Norway. Um, I find it very interesting, yet extremely problematic to talk about the situation of the miners in particular. Um, and and I, I do absolutely believe and, and, and agree with you that we need to listen to them. But from a child uh, pr protection perspective, it's, it's so hard to kind of just say that they leave it to them to decide where they want to be. Because we see, I mean, from child protection systems also he here in Norway, we see that children are extremely loyal. They will not choose to go elsewhere. They won't leave an abusive mother. Uh, it, it's a tricky situation. And, and I would love to challenge you and, and, and kind of ask you for a bit more when it comes to recommendations, um, if, you, if you understand my question. Thank you. You can start, Wenke. Of course, it's, it's, it is difficult, but I also think that what is seldom taken into consideration is that uh, many of these um, minors, at, at, at the time when they're separated from the armed group or you know the DDR process, they are 15, 16 years old. Uh, and I would say that uh, they are able to, to make their own um, evaluation of their situation. It has to be remembered that these are children and teenagers that have they have already experienced a lot and they have learned a lot to to how to manage their lives. But it is of course also that's why I'm talking about context because it's very Colombia is very different from the most of the worst cases that's often referred to is Sierra Leone and Uganda and in general Africa south of Sahara. And I think also the, the IDDRS, the, the UN standards, are built very much on the experiences from the African countries. And in, in uh, the experiences that I saw in, in Nepal and in Colombia were, uh, to a large degree, different. Of course, I don't, I don't think that there were not abuses, but there was at least not a culture of abuse within FARC. Absolutely not. So I, I think... Um, of course, depending on the age of, of the child, but uh, 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 and and if it's voluntary, uh, of course, if the child has been abducted and is very like nine years old or so, which often happened in Sierra Leone, that's one thing. But I mean, when you have children who have and teenagers often who have voluntarily, uh, like they did with FARC, joined the organization and they have made their thoughts, I think they're able to make the choice, honestly. Okay, anyone else who would like to ask a question or comment to what you've heard? Yes, there's one over there. Hello, thanks. Uh, my name is Lea Mate. I just uh, finished a master's on ethics in peace negotiations um, related here to the FAIR project at PRIO. And yeah, thanks for the important and interesting perspectives. I want to challenge you, Doug. Um, you were talking about mediators having to be, um, yeah, having to pay attention to not push too hard the agenda. 
and my thesis is focusing on the conflict parties. So I was like thinking a lot in my analysis about the role of the conflict parties and how do they, um, yeah, how do they relate to inclusion issues? Um, and I wonder like this gap between how does the mediator address um, ethical issues like inclusion and how does the conflict party um, yeah, understand these issues? Um, so I'm wondering like, are there moments where processes can be more um, exclusive in order to follow, like not to um, put upside down the um, societal structure that the conflict parties are rooted into? Or is it like, yeah, where is it Western actors pushing ethical agendas? And where is it um, necessary that these actors actually do push these agendas? I think it's like, for me, it's, it's a very um, difficult balance. And I, yeah, I would like to hear your thoughts about it. Hi, my name is Monique Bennett. I'm part of Julia's Disarm program. I'm a doctoral researcher. Also for Doug, thank you so much for your, your presentation and Julia and Venka, it was brilliant. Um, so I was just wondering the purpose of including victims in peace negotiations, if you could unpack that a little bit more. Um, what does this add? Um, what are the practical implications of the peace negotiations by including victims? Thank you. Thank you. Uh, just first, just a short comment to the, the question that Venke responded to. I very much agree, of course, but there's, you know, my experience, at least in, in, in the <laughs> Colombian peace process, that there were, there were really no question about how to deal with the miners. You couldn't really take FARC's responses at face value when you ask them about miners and whether they had joined voluntarily, all of that. We, took all of that with a pinch of salt every time, obviously, because there, there could be legal ramifications for individuals in the FARC, um, uh, depending on what sort of, uh, how the issue of minors in the FARC was perceived by the international community. So you had to take it by a, with a pinch of salt. But what I saw was that when the Colombian state institutions engaged with the parties at the table towards the end of the process, there was really no question about what was the best way to deal with the miners. It was, you know, it was, it was basically, the idea was from, from their perspective was basically to call in the Barnavana and do the regular procedure. So there, that, that was it. So any deviation from that was met with fierce resistance. And so, Barnavana in that particular case was not sufficiently sensitive to the to the to the conflict and to to the to the process. And then in addition comes all of this relatively standardized responses from the international community how to how to deal with miners in armed conflict. And I think you know the Venke talking about uh, Sierra Leone and uh, sort of creating a benchmark for how the international community are going to deal with children in armed conflict cannot be the right way to handle these issues, I think. You have to be much more uh, subtle, not subtle, but um, advanced in your approach to, to, to such a difficult topic. On the issue of pushing the agenda, well, I mean, it's, it's really a question of how, to, how, how do you get 
the parties to take ownership to a topic that you think is important. That's everything. That's that's all. So it's you know when you're when you have a couple of friends discussing an issue and you want to direct the discussion in a certain way, you will, will have to do that wisely by not hammering them in the head with your views, but sort of use the diff different tools at your disposal to get them to understand that this is a topic that they should take ownership to and drive forward. So it's really not, it is not more complicated, but as complicated as, as that. And the, um, um, you know, the unpacking of the purpose of uh, victims' in inclusion, it's, um, it's um, I mean, it's, it, it's, 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 it's evident that in any case where you have a victim, you need to listen to the voice of that victim. That's the system in any uh, uh, national penal system. It's a, that's the system in transitional justice, and that's how it works at at the peace negotiation. You take have to take into account the voices of of the victims, both to enlighten the parties of sort of what sort of abuses have taken place, what are the specific necessities of those victims going uh, going forward, and how do you really create a peace agreement that resonates with the population. And uh, in Colombia, with millions of victims, it's difficult to meet the Colombian, really, without that Colombian telling you that he or she are, has either di directly or at least indirectly been the victim of the armed conflict. So you have to sort of take it seriously in order for the peace agreement to be sufficiently um, responsive to their needs uh, in order for the peace agreement to be, uh, to be um, implemented and having the support of the, of the population at large. Thank you. Um, I'm Mark Harris. I'm from the UN Department of Political Affairs in Indonesia. Um, you wonder why I'm here. I'm, I'm on holiday, actually. <laughs> Escaping from my family. Um, so I just have a quick question in relation, um, probably to Doug and, and Julia. On our side, within the UN, there's definitely been this push, policy push, uh, in terms of integration of gender, advancement of the women, peace and security uh, agenda. Uh, I work with the regional organization ASEAN. That's been fairly straightforward. Um, of course, we know, I think there's been study um, of the Philippines peace process where there was gender integration in terms of the peace tables. Currently, it's the youth peace and security agenda that's been advanced within the UN, and certainly to us working on the ground. So I'm wondering really to Julia and to Dag, in your experience of the peace agreements and in Colombia, to what extent did youth come through and the inclusion of youth within those agreements? That was probably early at that point, but if you could think how you would have addressed that. Because what I find with some of the policymakers now is very much, there's a reluctance on the inclusion of youth. And when I talk about youth, I'm talking up to the age of 35, 40, depending on the country, because there's obviously a, a more radical element to youth generally in these situations. So you see an inter intergenerational kind of reluctance here for that inclusion. But that's certainly the way we've been encouraged to move this on our side. So interested in your, in your responses, if this has come up in your research or, or experiences. Thank you. Thank you. Maybe Julia would like to start responding. 
Thank you very much for this question and uh, welcome to this beautiful holiday destination. <laughs> uh, very interesting to hear this perspective, especially since uh, for a few years now I've been working on the Philippines and on the MILF's uh, decommissioning, uh, decommission process. And I just want to reflect first on that particular case related to women, why that agreement, uh, it's a 2014 comprehensive peace agreement between the government and the more Islamic Liberation Front is hailed as one of the other very advanced gender inclusive processes, which is absolutely true. But the female combatant wing of the MILF, for example, has not been included uh, in the agreement. So which women are we talking about in the first place? I think it's a, it's a very interesting discussion. Um, when it comes to youth peace and security, it's a very interesting point. This is not the first time I hear this question from uh, practitioners this year when I've been presenting this data elsewhere too. Uh, so I looked uh, into it after the first time I've, I've heard about it and uh, amongst the whole sample that we looked at. I, that's why I included this uh, Central African Republic example there. Uh, there are similarly two agreements only when it comes to the DDR specifically, because that's my focus area, that mention youth. Uh, and this is interesting how youth, similarly to men, young men with guns is getting securitized, right? Uh, this also makes it a little bit tricky that all men may be, be portrayed as dangerous, whereas all women are victims, right? It's very easy to fall into these dichotomies. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this evolves throughout the years uh, and what kind of research comes out of it, because I think this is a, this is a particularly interesting area. Very few agreements have reference to it, though. Thank you. What about you, Doug? Um, any experience with uh, the youth issue or the youth agenda from your work in Colombia? No, I, I probably wasn't paying sufficient attention, but I, to my knowledge, the parties didn't really uh, you know, talk much about the issue of, of youth at, uh, at, at the table. And I don't think the peace agreement is very explicit on that uh, that either but I'll, I'll have to, I, I don't think so um, yeah personally you know I'm I'm, I'm not convinced of that agenda um, uh, I'm not necessarily right on that but I haven't been you know putting in enough energy into it but um, it, it's it's uh, it seems to me as um, uh, as an interesting topic to, to obviously have discussions on and, and, and do research on, but having it as sort of an operative entrance into peace processes for inclusion into a, into a peace agreement. I'm, I, ha I personally haven't really understood uh, you know, the value of that and coming back, back to the issue of uh, effectiveness and inclusivity, I'm, 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 I'm not certain. I think the fact that um, you haven't seen much of this sort of language in your research, Yule, is probably because this is a fairly new agenda, formally. I think the first resolution was adopted in 2015, 16, around that time. Okay, anyone else who would like to ask a question? Yes, there is one woman there. My name is Britt Schumann. Uh, I, um, I'm not a researcher, but I've, I've written a book on the peace process in Colombia uh, from the point of view of women called Kvinnenes Fred i Colombia. And in this book I had an interview with a 
young girl who had been uh, in FARC and uh, her experience also uh, when with the reintegration uh, situation she had been to, but also talking about life in as a child soldier in, in FARC. And uh, this was a young, happy girl who, who thought that uh, she actually had been through something very interesting and, uh, and felt that she was very well taken care of. She even got uh, to study, she wanted to become a, a nurse and they gave her the, the opportunity to study nursing. So uh, when I talked to her, of course, this was after the she had been through the reintegration process, which was organized by SOS Children's Villages in Colombia on behalf of UNICEF and this uh, government. Uh, and um, and yeah, yeah. So it somehow confirmed what you said that actually they she vol volunteered uh, to to take part in FARC, and that was because of her she's, her own family situation was really really bad, and so she wanted to get away. And these young fox soldiers passing by, happy with uh, uniforms and seem to have enough food, enough uh, uh, a good life, uh, was very attractive in the areas in Colombia where where they where they lived in the in the outskirts in very poor very poor areas. So I think, um, to me, the whole experience of doing these interviews with these women changed also my viewpoint of. FARC, uh, which is presented as a very horrible uh, guerrilla group that, uh, but of course at the, at the bottom of them there was a certain ide ideology also of a progressive and of equality. So I, I'm sure I don't, I don't have any questions, I just wanted to comment on exactly that experience. Thank you. I don't know if you would like to No, it, thank you, but it's, 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 it's interesting to hear your your uh, story also and uh, by the way if you like to read more of these interviews this is um, available at the back here yeah but uh, I just I just uh, remember one thing that I forgot to say to that question if I can yeah if there's nobody else in the line no. uh, and that is also that um, we have to remember that um, some of these miners that are interviewed had experienced, as I said, that the army had been bombing their village or someone in their family had been killed by, by the army. So they were with FARC and they were fighting against uh, the government or the army. And then suddenly they are placed in an institution where the, the, the ICBF, the social family welfare, is kind of taking control. So they didn't trust the government. They were nervous, and this is also something to take into consideration. They were part of the conflict, also the miners. They had come there voluntarily, and then they faced this um, anxiety because of that. So that's also <laughs> a part of it. And that was that was same for both genders. Yeah. Yes, super brief. I'm Eleanor. I work as a research assistant here. Thank you very much for the three super interesting uh, presentations. I was kind of curious about uh, your last comment, Doug, about how uh, the inclusiveness uh, or the inclusive language and the inclusive programs of peace agreements has been uh, more critically viewed in the last few months and uh, how this has been a rather recent 
development. So I was curious to hear a bit more about it and about the creative solutions uh, that you were sort of uh, talking about uh, and what what you think those creative solutions could be to making the inclusive language uh, more palatable. Um, yes, thank you. Um, uh, my name is Samira Nazar. Um, I work in Somalia, the security forces, um, especially the police. Um, I don't think this is a question, but more of a comment. Um, so, um, working in Somalia, I'll try to be very brief. Um, we have two sides. Um, we have Al-Shabaab and we have the community. Um, with Al-Shabaab, um, we understand that we have a lot of things going on. Um, same with the community. Um, but I just want to uh, mention here, um, with youth and children, um, we have uh, people joining Al-Shabaab, we have gangs within, within the community. Um, so um, it's like in every country you go, um, you have two sides. Um, there are people that are harassed, um, that are going through the difficult sides of one side, whereas the other side you have people who are willingly joining um, these gangs or these groups that are working or um, doing whatever project they are in that country. Um, so um, we have been thinking about, um, since we have children and youth, um, how do you kind of um, differentiate between these parts? Because when we say child or children, we go to the point where um, this person has to be 18 years. That's to that point, that person is a child. And then we come to youth, it's like from certain age to certain age. Um, how do you kind of deal with it? Um, I hope it's not confusing. <laughs> Hi, uh, Ingun from Plan again. Uh, big question at the end here, but uh, any comments on how uh, gender and inclusion is uh, taken into account in the talks with uh, Yellen? Okay, who would like to start? <laughs> um, I guess um, most of the questions were to you, Doug. Uh, not the one on children and youth. I'm not sure whether anyone feel um, that they have the competence to, ask, uh, to answer that question. I'm not actually sure from which age you define yeah. as youth, so maybe someone has... As far as I remember, these are, first and foremost, thank you. I think this is, Somalia is a fascinatingly horrible and interesting context, so it's very interesting to hear your reflections. There are legal definitions for this, right? Uh, so I, I believe that this is the straightforward way to mediators or anyone to follow this. Do they really correspond to cultural understandings of age? That's a very different matter. As you said, in international law, if you're below 18, you're a child, the kind of category that is emerging as youth, usually there is a breakpoint. Either it starts from 19 and encompasses it up until 35, 
or I've seen definitions when it starts from 24 to 35. These are arbitrary benchmarks, right? Uh, but this is legally regulated, and this is all what I know about, but maybe the gentleman who's working on it knows more about these categories. <laughs> I'm working on it. I've been asked to move yeah. the agenda forward. In the UN, my understanding is 19 to 35. 19 so to 35. Different countries have different definitions. For example, Brunei, 45. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> Okay, thank you, Julia. I, I, I think we just have to leave the floor now to Doug uh, so w to answer the questions that were directed to you. And, and I think at the same time, it will have to be your kind of closing uh, remarks because uh, we are out of time. Thank you. Thank you. To the question on you know, creative solutions to bringing this agenda forward in a new security environment. I don't think I have the answers to that, but I think we need to be more, uh, and we discussed this a little bit a couple of days ago, Torun, uh, um, how we uh, package this. My, pers my personal experience is that, you know, talking about the, the you know, peace and reconciliation, all of these things, you know, gender and inclusion, you know, has always been met with some resistance in certain camps, right? Uh, it's not really, uh, it's not really Norwegian foreign policy, it has nothing to do with security policy, what does it have to do with the Nor Norwegian security, uh, strictly speaking, etc. That has always been a reaction from some parts of Nor Norwegian society. Are good questions, which we had responses to. Today I find it even more difficult to talk about dialogue and inclusion. You know, it's difficult to talk about prospective uh, peace talks on Ukraine, for example, before you get the hammer in the head by certain parts of Norwegian society and also internationally. So I think we need to be smarter in terms of how we frame the issue and how we convince people that this is really about security. Uh, it's about Norwegian security. This is part of the Nor Norwegian security ag agenda. Talk about peace, talk about uh, reconciliation, talk about inclusion, but we need to be smarter in how we present it. And it's sort of related to what we talked about earlier, the, you know, the how, how do we get parties to take ownership, reluctant parties to take ownership to this agenda. Um, I mentioned uh, a particular uh, Colombian whom I met who was the neighbor of the architect, as I call him, architect of the peace agreement in Colombia, Sergio Jaramillo, who was the peace commissioner and number two in the Colombian uh, negotiating uh, agenda, Sergio Jaramillo. I was up, as I told you about, up in his apartment having breakfast. And in the, in the apartment next door, uh, Alvaro Leiva, who is now the foreign minister of Colombia and who is now bringing forward the left-leaning Colombian president, his agenda to bring peace, total peace, as he calls it, to Colombia. So that entails negotiating with dissidents of the FARC, and negotiating with um, the ELN, the smaller armed group that 
uh, we also did uh, facilitate peace negotiations together with the Venezuelans and the Cubans and a couple of others. Under Santos, they are now in the midst of a peace process with, um, with uh, President Petro. And that is really one, one of the very important results of the peace agreement with the FARC is that it made it possible for the first time to have a president from the left in Colombia. And I'm not saying this because I sim uh, sympathize with these views necessarily, or that I'm particularly left-leaning, but in a country where the left has never had the opportunity to run an effective campaign and to be elected to office, this is, this is huge. And it is thanks to the peace agreement with the FARC that opened this space for the left to compete in politics. So that's a huge achievement. As to the issue of um, inclusion with the EL, I, I, I don't follow those talks uh, in detail, so I'm, I don't have a, have, a, have a good answer to that. To that. But what I, have, what I know about the ELN is that they do not like when people come from the outside and tell them what to do. They have all the answers themselves. I'm convinced that they take the issue of um, inclusivity uh, seriously. Uh, and I'm certain that they will take ownership to it. And I'm also confident that uh, the government of Gustavo Petro takes it seriously. But where, where the topic is on the agenda and, and, and what the progress is in the dialogue between the parties, um, I don't know. Okay, I hope that answered your, your question. Uh, if not, maybe you can have a, <laughs> a talk with uh, Doug when we now finish the seminar. Uh, I'm sorry that we were running a little bit over time, but I think it was important to allow for the last few questions. So thank you, Doug. Thank you, Julia and Venke for your good presentations and for joining us here today. And thank you all for, for coming. And uh, remember that there are policy briefs uh, in the back and Venke's report. And if you're interested in Doug's book, it's also available in the back there for, for purchase uh, if you're interested. So thank you all for coming and thank you. <laughs>